uh, we thank you for today. And um, we, we thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, this uh, book of Revelation has become really encouraging to me uh, as we begin to, to view with, with clear eyes the end and how you have a plan and, and you, are, you have all power and are in, are in complete control. So we never need to be worried about who's in control because you are. Uh, we thank you again for Jesus. It is in his name we pray. Amen. I have a, a sister, Lisa, that is about four years older than me, and I think she would affirm this and, and tell you that this is true, although she's not here, so we'll never know. Um, but I think that she would tell you that she used to really torture me when I was a young child, right? Um, she'd tease me, she'd beat on me a little bit, she'd, she'd make fun of me, because for a good chunk of my elementary years, uh, she, she was bigger than I was, taller, stronger, and that whole thing. I remember that there were times where she'd be like sitting on me, you know, punching me in the face sort of thing. And my dad would say, Lisa, someday Steve's going to be bigger. And, and someday, someday th- this isn't going to be fun for you anymore. And she didn't listen and she'd keep teasing me. And I remember it's one of those childhood memories that's kind of just seared in my brain. I remember at one point, you know, she had me in a headlock or something and, and was punching on me. And I, I'll never forget my dad said, Steve, it's time. He, he knew I was big enough. He knew I was strong enough. So all of a sudden, I overpowered my sister. I got her in the headlock. I, I was beaten up on her. And that is honestly the last time I remember my sister beating up on me. Because there always comes a time in every storyline, there comes a time when it's over, when it's over, because one more powerful says it's over. Right? There, there comes a time when, it, when it's over, because one more powerful says it's over. And this is where we are in the book of Revelation, that there comes this time in the book of Revelation when God is going to say it's over, and it's over because one more powerful says it's over. Now, it's easy for us to, to lose perspective on this, because when you examine the world, I think it would be easy to, to walk away with the idea that, for instance, like sin is in complete control of this world. I think it'd be easy to walk away with that idea just as you examine the world. A couple weeks ago, uh, I went in to talk uh, with the volunteers in our shepherding center. That's our um, food ministry and our, our, our clothes ministry uh, that, that give away to the community. And I went in and I was talking to one of the volunteers and they had a newspaper out that they had been reading earlier that day. And I just kind of glanced down at the newspaper and I was so shocked by the headline of the newspaper that day that I stopped talking to the volunteer. I picked, this is awfully rude, I know, but I picked up the newspaper and I just started reading it because I was so shocked by the headline. And the headline in our Herald and Review locally said, um, man beats three-month-old. Man beats three-month-old. And it was one of those things where, where you're reading that and you're going, sin has a lot of control in this world. I think it would be easy to examine this world and certainly feel like disease and death are in complete control of this world, right? When, when, when you examine the world around you, I mean, who in this room hasn't had somebody they love affected by cancer? A family member, a friend, a coworker, everyone knows something, someone that is fighting that disease. And it would be easy to say, say death has full control of this world. I think to go on, it would be easy to say that Satan is in full control of the world as you examine the world around you. We have some friends that are trying to adopt right now, and the baby's mother really wants to um, have them adopt her, her child, but the baby's father, who just got out of prison and has no parental rights anymore, recently threatened her life if she gives her baby up for adoption. And it certainly seems like these things have control, sin 
and Satan and death and disease and all of this stuff is in control. But here's the message of Revelation. It certainly seems like those things are in control and it certainly seems like they have a great deal of power. It certainly seems like they have the run of the world and it certainly seems that way ever since the first sin is committed. But there is a day that is coming and it's coming in the near future when God will say it's over because I am more powerful and I say it's over. And so sin is on, its, is, is on, a, time, is on a clock. Disease is on a clock, right? Death is on a clock. Satan himself is on a clock. There will come a day when their reign and their rule is over because one more powerful says it's over. Now, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Revelation uh, chapter five. We're eventually gonna be in six, but I wanna show you Revelation five because in Revelation five, we're introduced to this idea of the scroll. And you're going to see the scroll again and again through the book of Revelation, but it's first introduced to us in Revelation 5. And, And here's what the scroll is. Let's go ahead and put it up on the slide here. The scroll, check this out, the scroll is essentially God's plan to finally bring about the destruction of sin and Satan and death and disease, we can add that into the list, and allow for the maximum number of people to go into heaven. All right? So written on this scroll, it's got writing on both sides of it, written on this scroll is God's plan. It is God's plan to bring about the destruction of sin and Satan and his plan to bring about the maximum number of people into heaven at the end of all things. In short, written on this scroll is how it's all going to end. And you say, well, where is the scroll right now? If you look at the text in verse 1, the scroll is in the right hand of God, the one who's on the throne. So God today is holding the scroll. Make no mistake about it. God knows how it's all going to end. God knows how things are going to end, and God has that in his hand. He has all power, all control, and right now, for whatever reason, right now, God has the scroll, and for right now, for whatever reason, he's waiting. And the Bible says that he's waiting uh, for, for more and more people to come to Jesus. He's waiting uh, for, for, for some time that only he knows about. So while we're in the end times right now, right, and I believe we are in the end times right now, there is going to be a series of events that take place that, that, that according to God's plan, that are gonna bring about the destruction of sin and Satan and death and allow for the maximum number of people to go to heaven. And so in Revelation 5, we're introduced to the scroll, and then we hear in a loud voice this idea, who is worthy? Because on this scroll, there are seven seals. And and when the seals are broken, the plan gets implemented. So, So there's an angel there, and the angel says, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to break the seal? Who is worthy to implement these things? And no one is found to be of worth. And then in verse 5, they see, the lion of the tribe of Judah, title for Jesus. And they say, they begin to say, he is worthy to break the seal. He is worthy to open the scroll. He is worthy to implement God's plan because he has already triumphed. And in verse six, we see Jesus, his image changes. And all of a sudden now he looks like a lamb that was slain. Here's why Jesus is worthy to open the scroll and to break the seals when nobody else is worthy. Jesus is worthy to do that because he has already triumphed over Satan. So let me kind of give you the biblical teaching on this. And I think this is gonna begin to put the world into perspective for you you and I. Because here's what I want you to see. Satan and sin and death and disease have already been triumphed over, 
right? That happened at the cross. That happened at the resurrection. So Satan, sin, death, and disease, they have been triumphed over, but they are not yet fully destroyed, all right? So so Satan's future was sealed at the resurrection. Satan knows where he's going. He knows where his eternity lies. He knows what's in store for him to a certain degree. At the end of all things, his future has been signed, sealed, delivered. My son loves that song right now, right? Um, He walks around singing it. It's really cute. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours, right? Um, Satan's Satan's future is signed, sealed, delivered. There is not a thing he can do about it. So, So he has been defeated, but he is not yet destroyed. This is why you and I still face temptation and why we still sin. Because Satan has been overcome, but he's not yet destroyed. This is why people get sick and have a hard time. Because the the consequences that have been in place since Genesis 3 are still there. And one of those was death. And so people still get sick and they still die because Satan has been triumphed, but not yet destroyed. Right? This is why um, hard things still happen even to Christians, right? This is why th- all of that takes place because Satan has been triumphed. He has not yet been destroyed. The story of Revelation from Revelation 5 until the end is the story of how God finally destroys Satan. When you and I go to heaven, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. When you and I go to heaven, you're not going to be tempted to sin anymore. Sin will be destroyed. When when you go to heaven, you're you're not going to face hardships anymore. They have been destroyed. When you go to heaven, there's not going to be cancer anymore. It has been destroyed. It is triumphed over today, meaning you can walk in victory after victory. It's triumphed over. It's not yet destroyed. Someday it will be destroyed. Someday it will be destroyed, and that day is coming. So just understand Satan's role in the world today in this weird place where he's triumphed but not yet destroyed. Understand that the Bible says he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those he may devour. He knows his future. There's nothing he can do about his future. The only thing he can do is affect your future, the one that God loves. And so he prowls around like a roaring lion and understand that that's his role in the world today to tempt you to help, to, to, to try to convince you to turn your back on God, to convince you to give up. That's all that he's doing today and understand Jesus' role. One day, Jesus will be dressed as a lamb, led to the slaughter. And he will approach the heavenly father and he will take the scroll from his hand and he will begin to break the seals. There are seven of them and he will begin to break them. And this series of events, this plan that God has to finally destroy sin and death and Satan and to bring as many people into heaven as possible will be initiated. Now understand, first of all, that this seven seals that we're going to study today, we're going to study the seals. The seven seals are... uh, uh, after the seven seals come the seven trumpets, all right? So you're going to see a list of seven here. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and then seven bowls of God's wrath. Seven, 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 all right? Um, and, and we're, and we're going to see these over the next three or four weeks, that there's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, and there's seven bowls of God's wrath. And this is God's plan to bring about the destruction of sin and death and Satan and to bring as many people into heaven as, as possible in the last days. Um, And that number seven in the Bible, it is so significant because in seven days, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we're going to see is with a series of seven things, seven 
seals, seven bowls of God's rest, seven trumpets, with a series of seven things, God is going to bring in the new Jerusalem and his new creation. And, and so seven represents perfection and, and uh, p- perfection in, in God's eyes. And so we tend to get fixated in the book of Revelation on 666. Um, it, it is uh, the, the mark of the beast, and we'll, we'll see that later on in the series. But right, oh, six, six, six. I just saw a reference to this on a TV show the other day. Oh, you know, he's got six, six, six on, on his forehead, sort of thing. What you need to know is seven, seven, seven is greater than six, six, six. Right, and so there's going to be a series of sevens in which God brings about the end of all things. And go ahead and throw this up on the screen. Here's what I want you to see: the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. Here's what they are. They are God taking definitive action to fully and completely defeat sin and death and Satan and to bring about an eternity for his people that is fully and completely perfect. All right? I don't normally put my notes up on the screen that exactly like this, but I want you to understand what's happening here. Because if, if, if you don't understand what's happening here, the, the next several sermons that we do here are just going to seem scary. But I want you to understand what's happening here because this is God's plan to fully and completely defeat sin and death and Satan and to bring about an eternity for his people that is fully and completely perfect. So at some point in, in, his, at some point in the future, Jesus dresses a lamb is going to approach the Father. I'll take the seal. Or I'll take the scroll. And he's going to take the scroll and one by one he's going to break the seals of the scroll and he's going to bring about God's plan to fully defeat Satan once and for all and to bring about an eternity for us that is fully and completely perfect. So I want to show you these seals, all right, one by one. I want to show you God's battle plan because some of you may have been thinking, I mean, wouldn't it be awesome? We know that right now God has the plan in his right hand. Wouldn't it be awesome to know what that plan is? It is awesome, he tells us. Chapter 6, verse 1. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals, and then I heard one of the four living creatures say like a loud say say in a voice like thunder come I looked and there before me was a white horse its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest all right now there's seven seals all right the first four of the seals we're, we're going to see horsemen that are sent out the first four of the seals have often been called, these are the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. We actually have kind of an artistic rendering of out in the hallway when, when you look at some of those um, artist renditions. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And the first horseman you see, he's in a white horse. He has a bow, a bow. He's given a crown. And he goes out bent like a conqueror on, conquest, uh, on a conquest. And here's what we see. Is this horseman symbolizes that, that he is a conqueror of crowns. That, that he has a crown, meaning he has all power and, and authority. You know, the, the power and authority Jesus gives him. But he's sent out and, and a con- as a conqueror, bent on conquest. And here's what we know about the end days. And this is happening now, as a matter of fact. But we know that in the last days, there's going to be a thirst for power and control politically. Whenever you see a crown of revelation, it's always talking about power and control politically. So we know in these last days, there's going to be a, 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 a thirst in men for power and control politically. We know that there's going to be an increased desire in the nations of the world to conquest and gain power and gain control for themselves. And there's going to be a temptation in the people of God to trust in those conquerors over God. 
Now, aren't you glad we don't live in that time yet where people are bent on conquest? Tongue-in-cheek, right? Of course we're seeing that today. And so when, when the first seal of the scroll is, is broken, this is God sending a conqueror of conquerors into the world. And those that conquer in the book of Revelation, those that have conquered, in the end, they are conquered. And the reason God does this, the, the reason God conquers the conquerors is that he wants to communicate to his people, don't trust in them. Don't trust in governmental systems. Don't trust in rulers and authorities of this world. Trust in me. And so God sends out this person on this white stallion to, to conquer the conquerors because he wants to remind his people in these last days that he is greater. He is the one that should be followed. He is the one that should be worshiped. He is the one that should be trusted. in. Remember God's plan. He, he is bent on defeating evil and giving as many people an opportunity to be saved as possible. So when this first uh, seal is broken, God is sending a very, very clear message. Don't trust your kingdom. Don't trust their kingdom. Don't trust anybody's kingdom but Jesus. So it's an important message for you and I to ask even today, even before all of this happens is, am I trusting in me? Am I trusting in a political or governmental system or am I trusting God? Because Jesus with this very first horseman, he's trying to, 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 to demonstrate to the people of this world that he is greater. Watch, I can, destroy, I, I can conquer the conquerors. I am greater, I know more, I am better. Worship me, know me, trust me. And God is sending that message. Look, let's look at uh, seal number two, all right, verse four. Then another horseman came out, a fiery red one this time. The first one was white. This one's fiery red. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. So the, the first rider is a conqueror of conquerors. Right? The second writer, he brings with him the ability to remove peace from the world. In other words, I know this isn't terribly encouraging. In, in the last days, as those days approach, there's going to be more killing, more bloodshed, and more death. Right? Welcome to Northwest. Right? This is not an encouraging word, but listen to me, Christian. Do not be surprised when you read the newspaper. Right? Like when I read the newspaper, it's like, man, alive, this, this world is going to pot. You know it's going to pot, right? My, my entire uh, life, there's been a debate of, is the world becoming more violent or is the media just bigger and they're reporting on it more? Listen, biblically speaking, the world is getting more violent. Biblically speaking, that is going to happen even today before the seal is removed. The world is becoming more violent. I don't think it's any surprise to anybody. If you get the Herald and Review, this is of no surprise to you. Right? If you get on the internet at all, <laughs> this is no surprise to you. The world is getting more violent. I don't think any of us would debate that, but what's astounding is why on earth in these last days would God send in a rider to remove peace from the world? Why on earth would God do that. Now let me just do a quick aside here because I think this is an unfortunate translation of this text, that he caused men to slay each other. I don't think that that is a good translation of this text because I don't think that's what God is doing. I don't think God is causing men in the last days to slay each other. I think he has removed his peace and violent men are doing what violent men do. They are slaying each other in those last 
days. And so, so why would God do that? Here's why. He's trying to get more and more people to stop finding their peace in this world and to start finding their peace in Jesus. So in the last days, he removes his peace from the thing we are most tempted to trust in, which is this world. He removes his peace from the thing we're most tempted to trust in, in the hopes that people will find their peace and their joy and their hope in the Prince of Peace, Jesus. So so we're going to see in the last days, God uses the violence of the culture. God uses the violence of the culture to bring about his redemptive plan in the world. He removes his peace and says, you can't find peace here anyway. Find peace where you should be finding it in me. And you may be tempted to ask, can God even do that? Which is a silly question to begin with. But can God use the violence of the culture to bring about his redemptive plan? And I've got one example of you that you all know about, the cross. The cross. God using the violence of the culture to bring about his redemptive plan. And he's going to do it again. He's gonna use, violent men are going to do what violent men do. We're going to become increasingly and more violent But God's going to use the violence of the culture to bring more and more people into his family, to bring more and more people that that are close to him. Now, I can give you a a modern-day example of this real quick. Did you know that in the most violent nations of this world, Christianity is growing by leaps and bounds today? So, So in the most violent nations of the world where Christians are persecuted and Christians are tortured and Christians are thrown into jail, they are seeing right now the most converts for Jesus, right? Why? There is something about a violent culture that causes people to say, I'm not going to find my joy, hope, and peace in this world. This world's trying to throw me in prison. This world's trying to to kill me and my family. that they're not looking for their joy, hope, and peace in this world. They are looking for their joy, hope, and peace in Jesus. So in violent cultures, Christianity is growing. In cultures like ours, where there is no real persecution, where there is no real difficulty, Christianity is stagnating and decreasing. Why? Because we find our hope and our trust and our peace in this world. Right? Because it's so, it's so easy to live in the United States. And so we find, in violent nations, and in, in nations that aren't industrialized, they don't have that option. They're not finding their peace in this world. They're not finding their joy in this world. They're, they're not finding it in their salvation in this world. They turn to Jesus to find it. And so this is, this, that's an example of what's going to happen in the last days. Is this writer's going to come in. He's going to remove the peace of God from the, the world. Violent men are going to do what violent men do. And, and more and more people are going to come to Jesus because of it. And so the message is don't be disturbed. Don't be afraid. God knows what he's doing. Verse 5. <clears throat> I looked and there before me was a black horse. All right? We've had a white one, a red one, and now a black one. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wage, and do not damage the oil and the wine. Now, here's why this rider is carrying with him scales. It is because there's not enough food to go around. And so they have to measure out the food to make sure there's enough for everybody. In addition to that, the cost of this food that is quoted here... Could you get me a glass of water, hon? Okay, thanks. Sorry. Um, something happened in this surgery. I don't have it today. Um, 
In addition to that, what's happening in this text is that the cost of the food is approximately 10 times the amount of what food would have been charged during this era of human history. So what is this writer doing? This writer is bringing into the world economic hardship. Right? So he, he's forecasting that in the last days, there's going to be economic hardship. And I have to say, of all the horsemen and, and of everything that's happening in the book of Revelation, this idea surprises me the least. Did you know that the Bible says the number one thing in competition with God for your soul is not Satan? The number one thing in competition with God for your soul and mine is money. So it is of no surprise to me as we approach the last days that God is going to attack the thing that we are most tempted to trust in, which is money and possessions and stuff. So in the last days, God is going to come at that with, with the same message that we've seen with the other horsemen. Thanks, hon with the same message that we've seen with the other horsemen, um, trust in me, find your peace in me, find your salvation in me. Don't trust your riches. Don't don't trust your money. Don't trust your stuff. Trust in me. All right, Uh, verse eight. I looked before me. I'm gonna go ahead and put a 10 spot down. I knocked that over by the end of the service. All right, um, any Double or nothing, anybody? All right, Um, verse eight. I looked in there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. Just another word for death, Hades is. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of, of the earth. Now, if you're taking notes, this is almost a direct quote from Ezekiel 14, 21. And in Ezekiel 14.21, it's almost a direct quote, not quite. In Ezekiel 14.21, God is talking about judging the nation of Israel. And he's talking about judging the nation of Israel for their idol worship, for their wanton disregard of God's commands, and for their violent nature against their fellow man. And so at some point in in Israel's history, God said, I'm going to come in and judge you. I'm going to judge you by the sword. I'm going to judge you with a famine. I'm going to judge you with plagues. Then I'm going to judge you with the wild beasts of the earth. That would be my last choice as a side note. If I was going to be judged, let's not do by the wild beasts of the earth, right? Um, But this is how God is going to judge, exact his judgment on Israel in the Old Testament. And so he brings this passage back up and he says, as as this seal is broken, one of the things that's going to happen is that God is going to send this uh, rider in on a pale horse named Death followed by Hades and he's going to exact his judgment, listen, on those that deserve it. My understanding is, uh, because of how, because of Christianity, my understanding is this will be people outside of the cross because thankfully through the cross we are not judged, we are saved through the cross. So there's going to be people outside of the cross and this is going to be people, listen, there is no hope in saving them. They have gone so far, they have done so much, they are so outside of Christ, they are so violent, they, they are so diseased, they are so warped that God is just going to send this writer in and said, judgment is coming for you today. And he's going to send in this horseman and they are going to die. He said, up to a quarter of the earth. They're, they're going to die by sword, they're going to die by famine, they're going to die by plague, and, and some of them are going to die by the wild beasts of the earth. And this leads us to to actually the next seal, um, uh, verse 9. 
I saw under the altar of souls those that had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice and said, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and judge our, our blood? That there, <clears throat> If you think about this, if you have an active imagination, this one might come back to bite you a little bit, but if you think about this, that all the martyrs of human history are going to begin to call out to God in these last days. They're going to say, How long, God? You promised us that, that you'd avenge our blood. You promised us that, that you'd stand up for us when nobody, when nobody would. How much longer? And in these last days, if you don't understand how motivating this is going to be to God, you don't understand a couple things about God. First of all, he is a God of justice. If he says, I'll avenge your blood, he's going to avenge your blood. The second thing you don't understand about God is his love for his people. That, that, that they would cry out to him and say, man, you know, the Bible talks about how these people died, but, you know, boiled and cut in two and drugged by horses and just awful, awful deaths. And they're crying out to God, how much longer until you avenge our blood? And God, at some point in human history, said, justice is going to be done. My martyrs have called out to me. The end is near. Verse 12. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. Uh, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat, goat hair. Uh, the whole moon turned to blood, <clears throat> and the, the stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from the tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky uh, receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Cheryl and I have uh, two trees in our backyard, and these, these two trees drop stuff onto our yard year-round, right? I appreciate the shade they offer. I hate these trees. Um, my neighbors, my neighbors hate these trees. As a matter of fact, one time I brought a guy out to begin trimming them, and my neighbor uh, ran over and said, are you finally cutting them down? Right? Because we're constantly having to clean up after these trees. And one of the things um, I've learned about having, it was pretty smooth, wasn't it? Um, one of the th things that I've learned having these trees is that the wind, when the wind begins to blow, and we get a storm coming through central Illinois, more is going to drop and more cleanup is going to need to be done. This is the imagery of this text. Is that like a wind, uh, like, like the wind shakes the earth. In the last days, at some point, God is going to begin shaking the earth, right? Metaphorically. And it's as though, in this passage, it's as though God is grabbing the earth by the shoulders and shaking it and saying, would you trust in me? The end is near. Would you worship me? Would you find your joy, hope, and peace in me? Salvation is ultimately found in me. Trust me. And it's as if he is shaking the earth. And if you don't think that's going to have ramifications on the earth, I don't know what to say, but this is what this passage is describing. And so those are the first six seals that are broken. I'm going to tell you the seventh at the end of the message. But um, as these things are happening, here's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice there are two reactions as these things begin to unfold. And I find that people are made of one of two reactions when they see God like this. Um, the first one's found in chapter 6, verse 15. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and every free man hid in caves and among the rocks and the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of God. 
One of the reactions that's going to be in the last days is not repentance. It's going to be hiding. People are going to run to the caves or they're going to run to the hills and they're going to hide from God. They're scared. They don't know what's happening. And instead of turning to Jesus for their joy, hope, peace, and salvation, they're going to run away and hide. And there's biblical precedence for this. We actually see this when the first sin was committed. Right? When the first sin is committed, Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit and immediately they go and they hide from God. Right? As though they can hide from God. But they hide from God. They, they shield their face from it. They want nothing to do with God. And this is the exact wrong reaction. Exact wrong reaction. Is they're running. They're scared. They're not repenting. They're not turning to God for salvation. They're simply hiding from God. And I find that, I think a lot of people feel this way when they be, read, read the book of Revelation. So I'm, just, I'm not going to read this. I'm just going to hide from it. Right? I'm just going to hide from God. And I'm not... I'm not going to engage in this. And hiding from God is the exact wrong reaction. In chapter 7, we see the exact right reaction. All right? So in chapter 7, we read about, I want to just touch on this for a minute, 144,000 are sealed um, in, in chapter 7. And this 144,000 number, if you read the teachers of Revelation, this has become one of the most controversial numbers in all the book of Revelation. What exactly does it mean? I'm going to be honest with you. I hope this doesn't come across as arrogant because I don't mean it that way at all. I don't get the controversy. I really don't. To me, it's clear what, what it means. It means that chapter 6 is happening. These seals are being broken. In chapter 7, we read that 144,000 from the nation of Israel put their faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, during the era of the seals. During the era of the seals, 144,000 Jewish men, women, and children are saved. I've read some crazy stuff about this. I've read that there's going to be 144,000 Jews in heaven, and that's it? That's crazy. It's insanity. It is not what this passage is trying to teach. I've read that there's going to be 144,000 people total in heaven. Crazy, ludicrous. And let me tell you, it's as though the people coming up with this stuff haven't read the book of Revelation. Because they said 144,000 in heaven total. Now look at verse 9. After, I, after this, I looked, and there before me was a what? Great multitude. A great multitude that no one could count from what? Every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And they were standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And, and listen, so, so you, he breaks it down that there's going to be 144,000. During the era of the seals, 144,000 from the nation of Israel. And then from the other nations of the world, a, 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 a crowd so large is saved that they can't even count them all. Here's what I want you to see. I wonder if some of you were having a reaction as I was going through the seal saying, all right, Steve said that this is God's strategy to bring about the end of all things and to see as many people as saved as possible. How on earth is God taking these actions going to save anybody? It works. Sometimes you don't understand God. And sometimes his ways are a mystery to you. But he, take heart in this. He knows what he's doing. 144,000 Jewish men, women, and children, and then a multitude that is too large to even count, are saved during this era. So he's not removing peace from the world. How's that going to save anybody? Or bringing a famine into the world? How's that going to save anybody? Doing, how's that going to save anybody? It saves a bunch because God knows what he's doing 
better than you know what you're doing. And so while it wouldn't make sense to you to maybe do what God's doing, it makes sense to God because he's wise and he's holy and he knows all things. So somebody, one of the elders is looking at this huge crowd of people and look at what he says. Um, who, who are these people? And look at what it says in verse 14. These are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And you see in this text, when you read, you can read it on your own, that they worship and they declare their love for Jesus again and again and again. Do you see the contrast? There are those who see the events of chapter 6 and they run and they hide to the caves. They don't repent. They don't turn to Jesus. They just run and hide. And then there is a multitude too large to count that sees the events of Revelation 6 and they say, I will worship no matter what. I will follow no matter what. I will be in relationship with Jesus no matter what. I need him now more than ever. I need to worship him more than ever. I need him in my life more than ever. I need him. And so there are are those that run to the hills and there are those that run to Jesus. And those are the two reactions of Revelation 7. And the ones that run to Jesus, look how it describes them. They are washed white. They are forgiven. They are set free. They are welcomed in. So, people misunderstand Revelation in terms of the questions they ask. A lot of people think, like the question of Revelation 6, a lot of people think it's, will I be alive when this happens? Right? And so they invest lots of money and lots of research and lots of time into trying to come up with a timeline of when these things are going to take place. Because really what they want to know is, will I be alive when all this happens? Don't know. Is that disappointing? I hope not. I don't know if you're going to be alive when this happens. I don't know if I'm going to be alive when this happens. I don't know if my son's going to be alive for when, when this happens. The other question that, that people kind of grapple with that is the exact wrong question is, why, what, what on earth is God doing? I hope I've demonstrated to you what God is doing. He's bringing about the destruction of sin and Satan, and he's trying to make it possible for as many people to go to heaven as possible. That's what God is doing. People grapple with that. What on earth is, is, is he doing? No, that's not the question either. The question of this text is this. Will I overcome? The question is meant, because we don't know if you're going to be alive. We don't know if your children or grandchildren. We don't know when this is happening. I know that 2,000 years ago, people thought it was going to be in like 20 years, and it, it wasn't. And today, people are like, oh, the end times are near. And who knows? It could be another couple thousand years. So the question is not, will I be alive? The question is meant to be internal, right? An internal look at yourself to say, am I an overcomer? Am I the type of person that if I lived through Revelation 6 and Revelation 7, I'd be a part of that multitude that is too large to count, that loves and honors and worships Jesus no matter what? Am I an overcomer? Am I made of that stuff? That's the question that we're meant to grapple with, is will I worship when I don't know what God is doing? Will I follow when I can't immediately see the future? Will I trust when I'm unsure of my own safety? Will I stay true no matter what? That is the question of this text. It is not meant for prediction. It is meant for introspection. Right? The book of Revelation was never given to you so that you could predict when the end times are going to take place. The book of Revelation was given to you so that you could enter into a period of introspection as I have grappling with these texts to say, am I made of the right stuff? 
Do I worship when I don't know what he's doing? Do I follow when I'm unsure of my future? Do, do, I, do I trust in him no matter what? Am I made of Revelation 7 stuff? Am I, am I made of that stuff? And you know what? You can begin to grapple with that today. You can, because there are times today when you don't know what God is doing. Do you worship anyway? There are times today when you are unsure of your future. Do you trust him anyway? There are times today when you're confused about the actions that God is taking. Do you stay true no matter what? This text is given to us not for prediction. Anybody that tells you they know when all this is happening. I sat through a seminar one time where a guy did like an hour and a half of math, right? Trying to show me that this was going to be like next year, right? Ah, wrong, right? Next year came and went. It is not given to you for prediction. It is given to you for introspection. Am I developing the heart of a believer that stands true no matter what? Now, you may wonder, what is the seventh seal? Or maybe... I lost you and you're, you're not. But let's pretend you're wondering, all right? Um, what is the seventh seal? Chapter eight tells us. And in chapter eight, all, right, all six seals have gone through. Some are running for the hills. Some are running for Jesus. Here's, here's the last seal that's broken. Is there's quiet in heaven for 30 minutes. And then the next thing happens. And we're gonna talk about that next week. Um, But until then, I want us to be asking ourselves, am I made of the right stuff? Am I a Revelation 7 Christian that loves and follows and stays true even when I don't know what God is doing? Am I made of the right stuff? And if not, I want to encourage you to begin to develop a love and a trust of Jesus that goes deeper than your circumstances that understands that he is greater and he knows more and he sees more than, than, than you and I could ever, ever know. Because if I were to lay out, hey, here's the plan to, to, to save the world at the end of days, that would never work. God knew it would and it did. And it does. So we trust in him above all things and begin to develop that faith today. Will you pray with me?